Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, a rising sophomore at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, former Watergate special prosecutor. And today I'm wearing a very special Jill's pin for the topic that we're going to cover today. And it is a pin that says, count every vote. And I would add to that, and allow every voter to vote. From Texas to Georgia to Iowa, Arizona, and Florida, state legislatures, that is majority Republican state legislatures, have already passed laws that create barriers to the right to vote. More such bills are pending. These laws limit the window of early voting, restrict mail-in voting, reduce polling places and Dropbox availability, They require new proof of identification, but worst of all, some give excessive new powers to secretaries of state or take powers away if the secretary of state is not a Republican, and they allow the state legislature to determine whose vote will count. All of this is part of a bag of tricks to disenfranchise voters, especially those of color and Democrats. This subverts the democratic process and threatens the very foundation of our democracy. As such, that makes the bills that the U.S. House and Senate pass on voting rights all the more important. Um, Today we have with us U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley, a Democrat from Oregon. He is the perfect guest to give us the inside scoop on the For the People Act because he, along with Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, is leading the effort to pass it in the Senate. Um, They face serious impediments, a likely filibuster by the Republicans and a lack of support from two key Democratic senators, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kristen Sinema of Arizona. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's dive right into the challenges facing the For the People bill and the suppressive measures being passed by Republican state legislatures. We're very happy to have you with us today, Senator Markley, to talk about this and would love for you to start with a summary of what's in the bill and why you see this bill as critical to pushing back against all the state efforts to restrict voting. Uh, Jill, this bill is about just fundamental values that are essential to a We the People Republic. One is the freedom and right of every American to vote. A second is that billionaires should not be able to buy elections with dark money. And a third is that uh, politicians should not be able to carve up districts gerrymandering in order to create a bias for one party over the other. It's a complete attack on equal representation. And finally, we should eliminate conflicts of of interest that mean leaders fail to serve the public interest. Public leaders need to serve the public interest. Fundamental values essential for our republic to thrive. These are obviously fabulous goals that uh, most Americans should agree with, um, but it is a quite broad um, effort to reform campaign finance, um, something that was reformed right after Watergate and then ended. But what do you say to the critics who say there's too much in this bill and that it should be uh, parsed into different bills? Well, anyone who knows how difficult it is to move a bill through the Senate (laughs) wouldn't recommend separating this into four separate pieces to address those four four pieces. And they're they're all interrelated to this common theme of defending the integrity of, of our elections. Uh, so uh, there may be pieces here and there. I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot about how do you defend uh, the ballot box for all Americans. 
that we can discuss and wrestle with. And, and some would say uh, this piece is uh, not as important or we should do automatic voter registration in a, a different manner or ensure that uh, you don't shrink the number of polling places uh, with a different set of guidelines. But that's a, that's a fair debate to have. But the point is we have to have that debate. And the vote today on the Senate is whether or not to proceed to have the debate. Uh, it's a motion to proceed to the bill. And right now, it looks like uh, Mitch McConnell is saying he's locked up all of his Republicans against having a debate on how to defend these fundamental values, which really means that what he's saying is he is playing power politics. He thinks he benefits from dark money. He thinks gerrymandering benefits Republicans in the, in the House of Representatives, and political scientists tend to agree that it's a, like a 15-seat advantage for them out beyond the framework of, of equal representation. Uh, he loves the idea of blocking particular groups of Americans from voting who happen to lean Democrat. So it's for him, it's power. For us, it's principle. And that's the battle we're facing. And we want to go more deeply into that. But before we do, I just want to clarify for our listeners and viewers that this is not the John Lewis voting rights bill. And if you could just distinguish the two, uh, President Obama just yesterday was calling for passage of both. And uh, I think it's important for people to know what's in the John Lewis bill as well. You bet. The John Lewis bill is preclearance. And it's based on the, the, the theory that there were certain states that, that were deliberately targeting groups to keep them from voting. And uh, it was agreement that, therefore, those states should not be able to change their election laws because they misbehaved in, in undermining the civil rights of Americans so badly previously. And that was kind of the, the heart of the 1965 bill that the, uh, the Supreme Court uh, recently gutted. Uh, the... Um, the For the People Act says we need national standards. Those national standards would 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 apply to any existing laws. So the laws that have, have passed in some 14 states over the last two months, uh, trying to prevent specific groups from voting, they didn't meet those national voting standards. Those those would be overruled. Uh, so one is prospective, looking forward. Uh, the uh, uh, and the other is saying let's fix the flaws that have already been passed by a number of, of states. So together, they, they create a very strong framework. That's a great explanation. And I, I want to focus on one particular thing that you mentioned, which is some of the laws that have been now passed by state legislatures. And I'm particularly concerned about the power that they're giving to state legislatures and state secretaries of state to determine the vote, to not count votes that they don't like, to make their own decision. Is that one of the things that's concerning you as well? Absolutely. And this is a point that Senator Warnock from Georgia has, has made, uh, that if we allow uh, state legislatures to take over local voting boards on a partisan basis, we're essentially going to have partisan legislatures overturning the vote of the people uh, and undermining our the integrity of our elections, and that that's just completely unacceptable. So I really appreciate uh, Senator Warnock from Georgia, one of our newest members, uh, along with John Ossoff of Georgia, uh, for making that case very vividly. 
you know, I, I found your framing of the principle versus power really effective. And I just want to ask you about one of your colleagues, Senator Manchin, who wrote an op-ed um, a few weeks ago that basically reaffirmed his position to both getting rid of the filibuster and the For the People Act. Um, he did, however, in that op-ed express support for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And then last week, he um, introduced his own version of the For the People Act that includes the provisions of your bill um, that he considers essential but eliminates other parts favored by many Democrats. And I'm wondering, first, what was your reaction to his op-ed and then also his latest um, proposal um, regarding for the For the People Act? I think his engagement over the last two weeks has been very, very useful. Uh, he laid out a number of areas of concern in one memo, and then he laid out areas or, or a, a kind of a template for what he'd like to see in another memo. Uh, Senator Schumer's team, the Majority Leader's team, the, the Rules Committee staff, my staff, uh, and his staff were working to consult through the, the weekend to try to hammer out a, uh, a vision. Uh, it's important to wrestle with, with the, the details. Uh, and details really do matter a, a lot in this regard. Uh, and I'm confident we're going to, to reach agreement on a, a bill uh, that won't be the, the For the People Act, uh, uh, but, but will defend those four core principles that I laid out that are in the For the, the People Act. Uh, and then Senator Manchin uh, wants to try to recruit Republicans uh, to join us. We want him to recruit Republicans. We want all of us to work to recruit Republicans. We would like to think that standing up for our Constitution and the right to vote and that uh, billionaires shouldn't buy elections, uh, these fundamental American values that that overwhelming supermajority of Republicans support these provisions across the nation. It's only in the Senate where the Republican leader is playing this this power game where we don't have Republican support. Uh, everywhere else, uh, we, we do. So uh, I'm, I'm hopeful we can get uh, 10 Republicans to join us. And then if, if that fails, uh, then we have to talk about uh, how we make sure we defend the Constitution and overcome uh, the uh, barricade that Mitch McConnell has created. You know, I was once optimistic, I think, about getting Republicans on the bill. But then last week after Joe Manchin um, kind of gave his uh, provisions to the For the People Act, Mitch McConnell then said that he's not even going to consider anything. So I'm wondering kind of what you think about Senator Manchin's proposal and if it's the best or only alternative to ensuring that the Senate can pass at least something that would remedy what state legislatures are doing. I think it's a, a very uh, uh, helpful dialogue uh, that is forging something that you have to have at least 50 senators to support, 50 senators and a vice president to pass a bill. Uh, 60 is not the requirement on a final vote. 60 is the requirement to close debate. And that's that's where we'll have to, to wrestle with the fact that after 1975, we have a no effort, no show filibuster. That is obstruction on steroids. Uh, where there's no no principle, uh, there's no presence, there's there's no uh, national scene, there's no pressure brought to bear, which facilitates uh, uh, obstruction, not not compromise, and not uh, people standing on principle and defending their position to the American public. Uh, so uh, I'm I'm hoping when we have a bill that we have majority support for. Uh, and that's 50, hopefully more than 50, but at least 50 in a vice president, then uh, we can wrestle uh, with, with how we fulfill the vision of the Senate. Now, what I mean by that is the Senate has always said it wanted to listen to the minority. So we haven't set up rules that run over the top of the minority. They can delay things. They can make sure they have amendments. Uh, they can uh, delay to try to seek a compromise. Uh, they can make things difficult. But in the end, 
you have to have the majority able to vote on a bill. And that social contract has been broken by Mitch McConnell. He likes the first half of this, which is a minority can delay things, but he wants that delay to be infinite, the obstruction to be absolute. Uh, and that puts us right where the founders told not to go. There was a supermajority obstruction that paralyzed the Confederation Congress that was in place while our founders were writing the current U.S. Constitution we have, the 1787 Constitution. And they warned us about not letting this happen. Hamilton talked about the consequence being tedious delays and contemptible compromises of the common good. Madison talked about undermining the very premise of a republic by having the majority will bow to the minority will. Uh, so uh, they were very emphatic. We not make this mistake, allowing the Senate to be paralyzed. Uh, and so we'll have to try to have 50 senators figure out how to fix that if, um, if McConnell persists uh, in this assault on these fundamental values. So that raises the question of whether there is any possibility that this could pass without getting rid of the filibuster, uh, given what we've heard. As soon as Stacey Abrams endorsed Manchin's compromise, uh, Senator Roy Blunt, the top Republican on issues of elections, um, because he's the top Republican on the Senate Rules and Administration Committee, immediately responded negatively, saying, when Stacey Abrams immediately endorsed Senator Manchin's proposal, it became the Stacey Abrams substitute, not the Joe Manchin substitute. And McConnell, as you've noted, uh, also said, basically, all Republicans, I think, will oppose that. And so what are we going to do as we go ahead with an expected vote later today as we're looking at this um, why is Senator Schumer calling a vote that looks like it's doomed to defeat? Um, are, is there a reason behind it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, calling a test vote and setting a deadline on it is a, a way to focus the mind. And that result of that has been the last two weeks uh, in which we have uh, had have 50 members engaged and working on the, the details of, of this bill. And then when we see if we have uh, 50 senators wanting to proceed, then we say, well, we have a majority of the Senate, 50 and a vice president want to proceed. Uh, if, we, if we do not have 50, if we have 49, then we've got to go back to, to work uh, on the details of, of the bill in partnership with Senator Manchin and, and others until we have 50. And then we'll come back and we'll, we'll go through this again. And next time we will we'll get 50. If we have 50 today, then we're en route to uh, finishing the details on that bill and, and creating the, the opportunity for Republicans to join us. Uh, and uh, then we're back on this path. In other words, there are sometimes people interpret uh, that failure on a test vote like this means, well, you, you've taken a, you, you've, you've brought it up, you've heard where people stand, uh, you've, you didn't proceed, and so you're just going to set it aside to the next Congress when maybe the, the number of votes are different. Maybe the national attitude has changed. That is not the case here. Think of this vote today as the ringing of the bell on the opening round of the fight. And there's going to be a second round and a third round and a fourth round. We're going to keep coming back because we have to defend our Constitution. We have to defend the right of every American to vote. We have to stop dark money from overwhelming the voice of the people and buying elections. 
we have to stop gerrymandering because it's a, a cynical, cynical corruption of equal representation undermining confidence in the outcome of our, our government. We, we have to get it done. It should be bipartisan. But there are other cases in our history in which it has taken a one majority, one party, and only one party would vote to save our, save our system. Well, that may be the case uh, here as, as well. Is there any chance that you can give us an insight into whether you've convinced uh, Senator Manchin to join in this so that it will be a 50 Democrats voting in favor? You know, there's a little mystery and a little uh, drama. Uh, I, I think it's likely to have 50 votes today because of the good work, good faith effort done over the weekend. Uh, however, um, the bill is uh, not locked down yet, and uh, uh, Senator Manchin could choose to, to emphasize that he, there's more work to be done. And so uh, we'll, all have to, uh, we'll have to wait and, and see a few hours from now how that comes out. So I, I remember the days of bipartisanship, which is what Joe Manchin is supposedly fighting for and wish we could get back to that. But given the realities of today, I'm wondering if you favor eliminating or changing, reforming the filibuster to allow a vote of the majority. Uh, Jill, when I came here in 2009 as a senator, I was uh, astounded by what had happened to the Senate. I was first here in, in 1976 as an intern. I took a year out of college to be here under the first year of the Carter administration. I came back after graduate school and worked uh, for Secretary Weinberger and then for mm. then for Congress during the, the 1990s. I saw a Senate that, that worked. I was so proud of it as an institution. I loved the Senate. Uh, when I came back here as a U.S. Senator in 2009, I couldn't believe the dysfunction it had fallen into. And um, it's only gotten worse while I've been here. To, let's think about it like this. During the time that President uh, Johnson, during the, the six years uh, that President uh, Johnson was majority leader, I believe he had one or two times he filed a cloture. People went forward on, on, on bills uh, without trying to obstruct them. It was a rare exception. That's what made it such a big deal in 1965, uh, a filibuster. And it was a show up having to <clears throat> kind of defend your position before the American public, not this no-show, no-effort version that we have now. Under the first uh, six years in which Harry Reid was majority leader, I think it was 400 uh, times that um, the culture had to be filed in order to try to proceed. And not just on final passage of bills, but on amendment after amendment, on nomination after nomination, on motion to proceed after motion to proceed. So it was used to uh, infect every, every step of the system, meaning that to have a discussion over legislation was like wading knee deep through mud. You know, you just had to painfully extract one foot and put it one step in front of you. Meanwhile, burning up and wasting the, the Senate's time instead of having real debate and decision making on which lots of amendments could be considered and just a robust uh, uh, interaction. Uh, so the Senate has uh, really reached an enormous low point. Uh, I remember the days where I thought about the Senate as the world's greatest deliberative body, a phrase some still apply, but all those who apply it have not come and seen the Senate of today and how broken and damaged it, it is. So we have a job to, to fix it. Uh, so after I came here and saw this, I started advocating for modifications of the filibuster, at least to return it uh, to the pre-1975 version, where those who wanted to vote for more debate had to show up and debate, the talking filibuster. 
I put forward a, a rule change in, I think it was 2013, and every Democrat who is here today who voted on it uh, supported it. So that was eight, eight years, years ago. Uh, so the, the talking filibuster would be a way to say that's works for, that gets closer to this social contract of making sure that the minority can be heard and can delay to try to get a compromise, uh, but not allowing them ultimately to obstruct or at least making that obstruction uh, something that takes time and effort. If you have time for just one more question, I know Victor has one he would like to ask. Okay. Yeah, just one, we usually end the podcast with um, by asking people about their advice for anyone who's of my generation about what advice you have for people who are interested in getting in politics and why that's so important to get involved in public service and um, in politics. Uh, Victor, uh, two things. First, I encourage them to immediately go uh, uh, and spend the day with your state legislator or your, your state house member, your state senator, just hang out in their office, help file papers, start getting a feeling for what it is to be part of a dialogue about policy. You know, some, some folks make a big difference in their lives. I think about my wife, Mary, who's a nurse, and she notes she changes the world one, one bedside at a time, and it's very noble and meaningful. Uh, when we come to policy, policy is much messier, but if you get good policy, you can help a lot of people through a, a good bill. Uh, and uh, whether that's more people being able to buy homes or more children being able to have a meal in their stomachs or better education in our public schools and, and so forth. And so um, uh, that's recommendation number one uh, is just just go and, and attach yourself to any of your local electeds and try to get a feel for it. Uh, and uh, similarly, if there's somebody you agree with, get involved in uh, uh, campaigns and, and help help them out. My second advice is don't think of it so much as, as a calling to politics. Think of it as a calling to policy. Uh, so think about whether you want to help change housing policy or health care policy or education policy or international affairs. Learn something ab about that. And then if that path brings you to the political world, fine, but you'll know why you're there because you'll know what you're fighting for. Well, this was a perfect way to end, and we know this is a big day for the future of our democracy, and you know, we'll let you get back to voting, but we're, we're grateful to have you with us um, here today Jill on the podcast. Jill and Victor, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Take care. All my best. Thank you, Senator. Thank you. Thank you.